Each week, the Bible as Literature podcast brings you in-depth discussion of the biblical text in a format short enough for your morning commute, but long enough to be substantive, posing difficult questions meant to keep you engaged. If you value this work, please consider donating as little as 25 cents per episode. That's just $1 per month. To learn more, please visit patreon.com forward slash Bible. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com forward slash Bible. Thank you. Hi, this is Father Mark Bulos with the Bible as Literature podcast. God has taken his place in the divine council in the midst of the gods. He holds judgment. How long will you judge unjustly and show partiality to the wicked? Give justice to the weak and the fatherless. Maintain the right of the afflicted and the destitute. Rescue the weak and the needy. Deliver them from the hand of the wicked. They have neither knowledge nor understanding. They walk about in darkness. All the foundations of the earth are shaken. I say you are God's sons of the Most High, all of you. Nevertheless, you shall die like any men and fall like any prince. Arise, O God, judge the earth, for to thee belong all the nations. Richard and I conclude our discussion of the Gospel of Mark with a review of chapter 16, verses 14 to 30. You're listening to the Bible as literature. This is Father Mark Bulos. And this is Dr. Richard Benton. And you are listening to episode 213 of the Bible as Literature podcast. We just kicked off our Tuesday program with Father Paul. Most of you will have heard a lecture he presented in Phoenix, Arizona earlier in January. That first episode was meant as an overview of the ongoing conversation that Richard and I will have with him on Tuesdays. So if you're interested, please tune in next Tuesday for our first interview with Father Paul. I'm sure you'll find it helpful and interesting. So enjoy those as they appear in your stream. And the purpose of the Tuesday program is to go into a slower gear and get into some of the nitty gritty with Father Paul about the background, historical and literary and some of the details around grammar and terminology that we often speed through on this show. It's a great opportunity to be able to draw off of his research because he spent many more decades than us researching this to such a high degree. It's great to be able to understand the way that he's able to incorporate so many themes across the biblical canon and to show the broader developments across the Bible and to be able to follow what he's been able to offer through his research. With 60 years of teaching and research. And I just want to point out, if you've been craving more detail and craving more textual analysis and craving a deeper scholarly approach than what we've been able to provide in this program, our show with Father Paul on Tuesdays is tailor-made for you. So let's get back to the Gospel of Mark. This is the end of a very long but rewarding series on this text. We are now dealing with chapter 16, verse 14, 
Afterward, he appeared to the eleven themselves as they were reclining at the table, and he reproached them for their unbelief and hardness of heart because they had not believed those who had seen him after he had risen. We talked about how they were mourning and weeping and how often this breaks the heart of the listener as they mourn and weep along with these disciples. And the next time Jesus sees them, he yells at them because they wanted to wallow in their own grief rather than listen to the teaching that came from what Jesus's death meant. And it's also important to note, Richard, that in Mark, as in Romans and elsewhere, actually throughout the New Testament, the function of the resurrection is accountability. In popular Christianity today, we talk about the resurrection as though it's meant to be uplifting and a pep talk. But the reality is that the function of the resurrection is accountability. That's the purpose of the resurrection. In other words, in ancient Egypt, the pharaohs built pyramids and then buried their slaves alive in the pyramids in order to send a message to all of the peasant class throughout Pharaoh's kingdom that even when you die, you are stuck with Pharaoh as your master. Jesus is undoing, as it were, the tyranny of Pharaoh. Pharaoh does not have dominion over the living and the dead. The pyramids are fake, and the bodies buried inside the pyramids are dead bodies. And Pharaoh himself is dead, and he can't give life to the dead, let alone control or dominate the dead. Jesus, on the other hand, in Mark, came back from the dead. He came back to show that he is the one who can hold you accountable after the fact, which means that you can escape Pharaoh in death, but you cannot escape God, the God of Abraham in death. I love that image of Pharaohs because you have these decaying bodies covered in gold and beauty and crowns and jewelry. And then you have Jesus who just had the empty rags that were left over while he was gone. He was resurrected. And that the image there is so powerful that all the power that Pharaoh had is only gold on a dead body, whereas the power and authority that was given to Jesus is much more than that. What Jesus brings, though, is this judgment. It's not about you feeling sad and then you getting together for a nice meal. There's work to be done. Jesus didn't come back so he could sit around and drink coffee with the disciples. He came back so that the work would continue. This is the underlying message of the Paschal celebration. This is what we rejoice in on Pascha. We rejoice in the judgment of the Lord. Again, in the lectionary in our tradition on Great and Holy Saturday, after we hear the lengthy, lengthy readings and the story of Nebuchadnezzar and the three youths and other readings from the Old Testament, when it comes time for the gospel reading, the Prochimenon is beautiful from the Psalter. Arise, O God, and judge the earth. We are hoping that he will come and judge the earth so that he could establish his kingdom. And in Mark, 
the first time he appears to the assembly, he appears in judgment and he reproaches them for their unbelief and hardness of heart. And the hardness of heart, in my mind, is reminiscent of Exodus. Jesus is confronting them with two systems of logic. One is the system of logic that's put forth by Pharaoh and Caesar. The other system of logic, which is presented by Scripture. According to the logic of Caesar, when your leader dies, you mourn, and then you wait for your next leader. According to Scripture, God never dies. God is the eternal one who created the heavens and the earth. There is no reason for mourning. The only thing there is to do is to keep working to spread the gospel, to spread the seed. And so if you're mourning, Jesus has to bring you back and pull you out of the logic of Caesar again. And this is what Jesus is having to do. So the reader must beware because Jesus is once again coming back from the dead as you listen to him upbraid his disciples, trying to pull you, O reader, out of the logic of the fear of death and fear of Caesar and fear of Pharaoh. And you have to pay attention for those of you who are familiar with this tradition of chanting, Arise, O God, and judge the earth on Holy Saturday. When do we chant it? We chant it when the priest brings the gospel out to read it to the assembly. That is the key here in the Gospel of Mark. That is what is reflected in that tradition. Because Jesus is alive. You are being held accountable. He does have dominion over both the living and the dead. The kingdom is in the palm of his hand. And his commandment is that that judgment is to be proclaimed throughout all the earth without end. And this is the purpose for which he was raised so that that judgment would be made to stand. In Greek, the word resurrection means to stand or to make to stand. The different terms for resurrection pertain to standing up, putting in place. And he said to them, go into all the world and preach the gospel to all creation. This is what we had in chapter 1. This is the thesis of Mark. The entire book is about this. People act like, oh, the Great Commission. No, this is not the Great Commission. The Great Commission was in one. This is the Great Judgment because there's been 15 chapters when they haven't been willing to do it. Arise, O God, and judge the earth, for to thee belong all the nations. Paul didn't drop out of outer space. He didn't invent this idea that the judgment was to be carried to the nations. And what is the judgment? It's the law of Moses, because you're judged by the law. He who has believed and has been baptized shall be saved, but he who has disbelieved shall be condemned. And can I do my normal move, which is change believe into trust? So he who trusts and has been baptized shall be saved, but he that does not trust, that mistrusts, shall be condemned because it is trust. It's not believe. When we think believe, we think it's possible to sit like the disciples around the dinner table and believe. Who cares? Jesus didn't care that these people believed. It's trust. It's not something that happens in your brain. It's something that is carried out and manifested in your actions. And when they sit around and cry and then don't trust in the words that the witnesses brought to them, they don't trust. They mistrust. They trust Caesar and his logic, but do not trust scripture and its logic. And frankly, Richard, if I were in their shoes hearing this verse, I would be panicking. <laughs> Correct. Number one, 
He said he would be raised, and I blew him off. And I cowered while he was being mistreated. I didn't stand up for him. I hid. I stood afar off. And then I went into my room and cried like a two-year-old. I totally let the guy down. I disbelieved. I didn't trust. I gave no credence to the report, which was contained in his words from the very beginning of this text. And now he's appearing and saying, people who don't trust, people who don't believe the report, guess what? They're condemned. He's telling them you're condemned. Now, tell me how Jesus is being pastoral here on Pascha. He's, tell me. I want to hear how you think Jesus should preach on Pascha. This is the meanest Paschal sermon ever. Now, my definition of pastoral does not equal kind teddy bear. A pastor, scripturally, meaning a pastor who pertains to the shepherd, Jesus Christ, isn't kind and isn't cruel, doesn't comfort, or doesn't take away comfort. A true pastor simply repeats the word that the Lord put in the mouth of Ezekiel, which is a nice way of saying, say exactly what I tell you to say, and then my judgment will gather all the nations to my mountain, which is not a piece of real estate in Palestine, if you haven't figured that out yet. These signs will accompany those who have believed. In my name, they will cast out demons. They will speak with new tongues. They will pick up serpents. And if they drink any deadly poison, it will not hurt them. They will lay their hands on the sick and they will recover. Let me caution the reader who still, for some reason, is expecting a fireworks show. We've been saying all along that people who wonder and are amazed by tricks and by miracles, these are the ones who are missing the point all throughout the book of Mark. So please don't go off the rails now. Remember that these are not for the reader to be amazed. You need to trust. Trust like the three youths. God can save me, but even if he doesn't, I'm not going to bow down to you, Nebuchadnezzar. This is how it works. God, of course, can save from these things because he is the author of life and death. But he may not. The point is not whether God can or cannot or God will or will not. It's whether you will trust in him. And I want to point something out here about the translation. Some translations say deadly poison. Some don't. The Greek text doesn't say the word poison. It just says if you drink anything deadly. The point is that they're not afraid of anything that could cause them harm. Some have tried to say that this is a reference to Paul, but it's important here to mention that the word that is translated as viper in Acts is a different word than the word here for serpent. Now, the Greek word that is used to render the Hebrew, ophis, in the Septuagint is the same term here as serpent. So it's possible, especially because we're talking about disbelief and hardness of heart, that the curse which the Lord sent the fiery serpents to afflict the people for their disbelief and their complaints, this may be a reference that suggests if you trust in the teaching of Jesus that he was commanded to bring to the nations, and if you trust in it by the action of preaching the word, then you will be spared the fate of those who complained about the Lord's judgment and wisdom in the wilderness. Right. In Numbers 21, people are surprised that God would use a bronze serpent to heal the people. 
But the point is not whether it's the idol or not the idol. It's what God commands. Do people trust in the word that God offers through Moses? That's the point. The point here is will the people trust in the word that they've already read in scripture, which Jesus is trying to encourage them to spread to the nations? The way to hear verse 17 and 18 is within the context of the narrative. Within the story, those who trusted in the name of Jesus cast out demons and spoke in tongues. Within the story, some who were touched by the serpent died and some lived. Whether you're talking about Paul, which I think is a stretch because of the terminology, or you're talking about numbers. The point is you have to contextualize this within the storyline of scripture. You can't project it into your life and then pick up a snake in a tent during a revival ceremony and wonder why you died. Of course, if you die, you won't be wondering, but that's a whole other discussion. And again, it's not deadly poison. It's anything deadly, anything you consume that could cause death. Don't be afraid of death. If you're afraid of dying, you're afraid of the power of Caesar. Trust in the Lord, and maybe you'll live, and maybe you'll die, but you'll carry out the mission as Jesus did on the cross. So then, when the Lord Jesus had spoken to them, he was received up into heaven and sat down at the right hand of God. And this is the point about the resurrection. Jesus was raised, as we're taught in 1 Corinthians, in power and established and stood up, not as a temporary fix like the snake in the wilderness, but as the permanent solution, as the one who ensures that all the nations are laid low and put under the footstool of his father's throne by means of his judgment contained in the scroll of the law. I cannot stress this enough. All of the different theologies that try to rationalize or dismiss the law are anti-scriptural. The whole story of the Bible is a movement of the law out to the nations. And the law is a story. Don't get hung up on what all these obscure regulations are and which ones we should follow. We've covered this. When we talk about the law, it's the story. It's the instruction. And there are rules and regulations in the story of the law that are put there for your edification as an addressee of the story. If you hear what we're saying about the law being brought to the nations and then go and try to keep all the laws strictly in order to make a point, you're not getting the point. This is Paul's fight in Galatians. Because there are aspects of the code of the law in the story of the law, the Pentateuch, which are given in the story as though these regulations themselves are a character within the law in order to illustrate to you that you're not righteous and you can't follow the law, not in these little examples that were given to make the point or in the weightier matters, as Jesus says in Matthew, justice and mercy and so on. You have to understand this. Nothing changes under the sun, which means that what applied in the Pentateuch 
applies in 2018, but you have to apply the Pentateuch, not pick things you don't like or pick things you like and decide which is good and which obviously doesn't fit. No, it all goes together. And when the Lord sets Jesus at his right hand, it does bring this all together. And it confirms exactly what the centurion noticed, that because of Jesus's clear obedience, he must be the son of God. And indeed, he sat at the right hand in power and authority. In power and authority so that the preaching would spread with power and authority and they went out and preached everywhere while the Lord worked with them and confirmed the word by the signs that followed. The only way we have signs is when the word is preached and all that the signs do is confirm the word. If there is no word, there is no sign, there's only fireworks. The only sign that was given to the prophet Jonah was the word of the Lord, which appears at the beginning of every chapter. That is the sign that was given to the prophet. So the word, in a sense here, accompanies the word in deed and in instruction. And the deed becomes the manifestation of the ergon of God. So don't be distracted by the sign. The sign only exists because of the word. Pay attention to the weightier matter, which is the word. It's only the word. And that has been the point that Mark has been trying to teach since chapter one. Keep sowing the seed. So this concludes our discussion of the gospel of Mark. I'm sad that we've completed this text. We promised one of our listeners that we would take up Jonah. Jonah is a beautiful book. It's very easy to handle in a very timely fashion. So we'll make the effort to go through Jonah in the next few weeks and then get right back into the rest of the New Testament Gospels. Thanks very much, Dr. Benton. Thank you, Father. We'll see you on Tuesday with Father Paul. Take care. Bye-bye. You've just heard the Bible as literature. Thanks for listening. The Bible as Literature is a production of the Ephesus School Network.